Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will be speaking with Barbara McLean, a nurse intensivist from Atlanta, Georgia. She was one of our first podcast guests in 2005 when she volunteered in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, and she's here with us again today to share with us her perspective on the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti, which, as we all know, occurred on January 12, 2010. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Rich. As you mentioned, I was on day one of evacuation to Houston with Katrina, and I arrived in Haiti. I actually left Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I live, on day three post-quake and arrived on day four post-quake in, in Haiti. So um, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is all of us being interested in critical care and working hard to manage patients are really interested in uh, getting to a disaster and getting there quickly Uh, so much so that oftentimes people load up their cars or load up their suitcases and get on a plane or get in the car and drive to where the disaster is or fly to where the disaster is. Uh, What I'm going to say to you is that as a volunteer who really believes strongly in volunteer effort and surge right at the initial point of the disaster, it is absolutely imperative that one travels within a system so that you are plugged into resources and abilities that you yourself may not be able to provide. Three suitcases treats 10 patients. There were millions of people who needed treatment, and being there without connection to a system I think would have been and and actually was very problematic for those individuals who did that. I was very fortunate, and I am very fortunate, most particularly through the Society of Critical Care Medicine, that I've made contacts worldwide. I called colleagues at the University of Miami Medical Center in Jackson Memorial, and I I sent an email to everyone saying, what are you doing and how can I get involved? And they basically gave me a contact person and then stepped out, and I... Uh, got in touch with the individual under Bart Green, who is, uh, many people know him, he's a very well-known physician uh, who actually uh, started Project MediShare. And I actually got connected to the University of Miami and Project MediShare. Well, let me just interject with a, with a couple of issues at this point, just to help uh, with the interview. I know you were involved with FCCS, very involved, and um, I actually just took the FDM course. But but the the point about joining the group, though, which was what what I wanted to emphasize, because the uh, many people, especially in SCCM, who have the training to be helpful, as you have pointed out now during multiple international disasters, getting that initial involvement with a organization can be absolutely critical. So that and as is emphasized in the FDM course, you can often be more of a hindrance than a help if you're not actually with a group. Absolutely. And then, as you were saying at that point, one of the big difficulties was actually getting into Haiti. So if you wanted to talk about that next, I guess. Absolutely. Um, So uh, I was called on Friday afternoon at 4. I left Atlanta at 6 a.m. the next morning and arrived in Miami at 8 a.m. And at that point, my instructions were to get to a private airport, a 
uh, in Opalaca, which is about 35 minutes from Miami International. And out of that airport, there had been uh, donations of flights of private jets. Myself and many others waited for 12 hours uh, at this little airport. The majority of us got deployed that day, and some of us had to spend the night and go the next morning. And, And I was on the first jet out on Sunday. So on Sunday morning, myself and four others and a completely loaded jet with medical supplies took off. Um, We circled Haiti for about an hour. Um, So once we landed, we unloaded the plane, we moved our pallets around, we got picked up, and, and off we went to our initial medical tent, and there were two of them from the University of Miami, and they were on the UN compound. Let me just that, uh, that's ask... quite a, important, actually. Right. So, so just to back it up, uh, two questions I had about that is, if you could talk a little bit more about uh, uh, what Project MediShare is, and from what I also understand, if you could, at this point, I know SCCM ended up sending their own group, and were, were you part of that, or, or how, how were those connected? Or? Um, well, actually, I went to Haiti to pri- provide direct care. And I was doing that. Really, I didn't, uh, quite honestly, I mean, I hate to say that, but it's the truth, that I didn't know anything about Project MediShare. I was going through the University of Miami, but the University of Miami is actually uh, in conjunction with Project MediShare. Project MediShare was started by Bart Green out of the University of Miami. So it is a project that's had a continuous presence in Haiti. And that next, that following week, what I know about in terms of the society was the society sent a, a fact-finding group to the Dominican Republic. And uh, as you may or may not know, the Dominican Republic is connected by land to Haiti. Uh, and although they've had political differences, historically, the Dominican Republic has been incredibly supportive in Haiti. They have a medical tent on the tarmac where we were uh, after the first week. Uh, and they did a lot of cooking of food and distribution of food to patients and families and also providers uh, starting in the second week. So the fact-finding mission from the society included Marie Baldessari and Gervais Nicholas from the society and others who actually went to the DR to see what kind of assistance they could offer in terms of providing uh, critical care support. And they actually are completing, I'm sure, a modified FCCS course in the Dominican Republic in order to support their care for the critically ill and injured from Haiti. Uh, The next question I was going to ask you was to allow you an opportunity to share with the members of SCCM maybe perhaps your first few hours of of what it was like. I presume you were in Port-au-Prince, but I'm not sure. And maybe tell us what it was like. Um, You know, you've been in other disasters. How is this similar? How is this different? And and how was it decided what your first efforts would be? (laughs) Okay. Um, This is a a big question. I'm going to try to answer as succinctly as I can. Uh, When I arrived, I actually had made friends with a search and rescue team that was uh, half of a search and rescue team that was on my small flight, and we sort of hung together. They were looking for places to search and rescue, and at that point, they asked me, and I considered being their, uh, basically their medical liaison. As you know, I'm a nurse practitioner as well as a nurse, so um, I had considered actually going out with them in search and rescue in order to start lines and volume resuscitate and medicate patients prior to removal from whatever they were caught inside of. But when we uh, went to our uh, basic, uh, basically our assigned position, and that was indeed in Port-au-Prince, I believe it was a mile northwest 
on the main road from the airport, and and it was on the UN compound. That's where we were initially. And there were two tents. There were about 65 to 70 patients. Um, uh, in the first tent, there was a small, very primitive operating room. We had an anesthesiologist, orthopedic surgeons, a neurosurgeon, which was primarily what we needed at that time, obviously, because of the type of disaster. Um, and when I got there, it was chaos with a trend towards a infrastructure of organization. So it's very chaotic, but if you understand disaster management, you can also see the infrastructure of organization. And you have to be able to, you really must be able to accommodate that. And you have to be able to kind of step outside of your paradigm. What I would say to every group that I oriented is, first and foremost, this is not your intensive care. This is not your emergency room. And you might have ideas about how to do things better, implement them. Don't complain about what's been done because people came here and many patients have survived because of what's done. So it's somewhat chaotic. I got there and I just basically turned in my copy of my passport and my license, both of which I had already done, but that's very important for volunteers to remember. They need to always travel with copies of those because even though they feel like they've already been vetted, to say when you get there, well, I already gave that, no one cares. They need it now, you give it, and then you start working. So I turned in my basic information, and then I just walked onto the floor and started taking care of patients. It was very wonderful, but very profoundly primitive. Um, well set up, but very primitive. We had lots of medications. We had lots of medications that we would never use, and we had lots of medications that we ran out with continuously, most particularly looking at broad-spectrum antibiotics that were both gram-negative and gram-positive. And you had to be fluid, and you had to be okay, and you had to know transitioning from a medication that you gave three times a day to a bigger a uh, bigger bolus of a medication that had same coverage that you gave once a day, and you had to be good with that. Um, but most particularly, I think, uh, in those first days, uh, the issue of, of course, amputation, and they were doing tremendous amounts of amputation at, at the U of M tents that were in Port-au-Prince. And then dealing with fresh wounds, uh, pain, and antibiotic coverage, and fluid resuscitation. Uh, so for 65 patients for my first trip, actually, we would have maybe two nurses and an EMT. Uh, one can imagine how difficult that is. And also, these patients have not slept, they haven't eaten, they haven't had water. There was little food, there was little water, there was no running water. We had no sanitation, really, for patients. So patients, if they were using the bedpan, we had to uncover where we could actually dump their um, their urine, and that was primarily urine. Very few patients were having bowel movements, and now they were narcoticized, and they weren't receiving fluid other than their intravenous fluid, and their families weren't really getting anything. That was really right in the very beginning. That that changed quickly, that we then were able to give water, and we were able to provide some food. And Can you talk a little bit about how they did do shifts uh, while you were there in terms of preventing exhaustion on the part of the volunteers? Um, I think... Uh, certainly understanding the fundamentals of disaster management, my perspective is that you very quickly become exhausted, both from a compassion point of view and just physically. 
Uh, unfortunately, as what frequently happens very early on a disaster, there isn't anybody to relieve you. This was a similarity for me, the same as in Katrina. In Katrina, I was in triage and I was functioning really in a nurse practitioner role, and there wasn't anyone to relieve me for about the first 20 hours. Um, that would be the same. That's what happened here as well. Um, I am very clear that one must have some rest. And when we, in the, my first visit, when we were on the UN compound, which was a completely secure, protected compound, barbed wire guards, armed individuals from all over the world, we were very, I felt very, very secure there. On the UN compound, amazingly, they had a little cafe. And every night, people who had an hour or two or three would go to the cafe and have something cold to drink, which we didn't have in any other way. You would go there for a sense of camaraderie and just to decompress. And even if you were just there for an hour, sometimes that was better relief, of course, than even sleep, because we were sleeping out on the ground, and some of us were in tents, some of us were just on the dirt grounds. Uh, but I do wish to reiterate that I think in the beginning there really was not much plan for people to have time off because there wasn't enough relief. When I went back and uh, I was in charge of one tent or another, I would have to make people take breaks because no one wants to. They're so involved and invested, they don't want to break. And I said, no, you have to have an hour. But there were many people who worked 9, 10, 11, 12 days straight with no break, which obviously is not the best of situations. So uh, as you may or may not know, and depends on your personal experience with disaster, you very rapidly develop an, an intensive camaraderie with the people that you work with. And so we did lots of decompression. Some of it was silent. We would just go and hang at the UN compound, or we'd sit in, uh, later we would sit in the staff tent, which was 200 cots laid side to side in a big tent on the grass, and we would just kind of just be together and decompress in that way. Um, but I think from a formal perspective, uh, there was nothing that said you cannot work more than this many hours. You have to take a certain amount of time off. We're providing a way for you to decompress. We're going to transport you to the beach. You're going to sit on the on the ground and see beautiful trees and people who aren't screaming in pain and injured. There wasn't anything formal. And that would be something that long-term, I think, uh, and anything that I would be involved in in the future, I would really talk very significantly about how we program that right from the beginning. Because honestly, it's the beginning that's the most difficult because they were, uh, we were doing so much surgery and we had a wonderful anesthesiologist, but he was the only one. And uh, we only had pain medication, fentanyl, and, uh, and also, uh, obviously, sedation with fentanyl, and then basically intravenous anesthesia with propofol, but nothing more than that and no monitoring. So most of the monitoring was based on whether patients were moving around or not when amputations began. And then wound debridement, of course, was an issue, especially in the beginning. Now there's wound stations with an anesthesiologist and there's good management. But in the beginning, there was so much suffering that it was inundating for the volunteers. It was very hard when you, walk, when you first walked in there, uh, fetid smell of decomposing flesh, of excrement, of a huge amount of people in a small surface who have not got running water and of amputation and death. Uh, and in the beginning, the mortality rate was 
somewhat high as one would expect. I mean, people were brought out of the rubble and they'd been compressed for three days and they got taken out of rubble without resuscitation, ended up in rapto and would die. And we had a lot of severe sepsis as well. But over the days and the second time that I went back, mortality was very low. Uh, we provided some level of critical care in the beginning. Um, again, remember, I was there from day three to day seven, and then I went back at day 10. When I went back at day 10, we actually had a small separated segment area that we called an ICU. We had initially one ventilator, then we grew to two ventilators. We had a also a tent where we could put patients who had communicable diseases. We had a meningitis patient. Of course, that was somewhat concerning because uh, being placed into the general population or even into separated by sheets area of an ICU, uh, where there was no way to actually prevent communication. And the biggest concern really was more, the patient had been on antibiotics for greater than 24 hours, but just secretion precautions, et cetera, this very difficult to control. Um, in the last visit that I was there, the last four and a half days that I was there, we had three cardiac arrests two patients on ventilators, placenta previa. I mean, there were many critical situations, um, but everything that we were doing, uh, except now in the operating rooms, we had a C-arm, we had four operating rooms, we had all anesthesia machine, and that was really advanced. But post-operative care uh, and recovery care was st is still, and it still is, relatively primitive in terms of how you would compare that to the United States. So um, one of the points you wanted to bring up was to differentiate provider needs and patient needs, uh, and if you'd like to talk about that, that'd be great. Yes, I think uh, well, one of the questions that had been discussed about was what were the major medical needs when I was there, and I want to differentiate that from provider to patient. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's very, very important uh, when we think about uh, provider needs to really recognize that no matter how many classes one takes, you can't really ever be prepared for a disaster like this. And it is really important in terms of planning disasters to really think about what kind of a force you need. In this disaster, obviously, acutely and initially, you need a very significant surgical force, general surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery being the top three. And that you also need individuals who are well-versed in infectious disease, and particularly, if possible, individuals that are well-versed in communicable diseases and diseases in developing countries. And I think those five groups are really important. Um, but I think the difference for me in terms of provider from here and from Katrina is related to where Haiti is, which is offshore. The, the surgical issues would be over with relatively quickly, and now these patients needed really significant nursing care, and we had very few nurses. In the beginning, four or five to cover 125, 130 patients, and they are getting huge amounts of volume, sedation, pain management, and antibiotics, and, and nothing is on a schedule, and it's very hard to keep up. And like on the times that I was in charge, I'd meet with my group and I'd say, look, this is what our goal is. No one's going to have pain and no one's going to miss an antibiotic. And I'm going to pull the plug on the electric lights because I want patients and families to go to sleep. So everybody needs to put on a headlight. In this particular disaster, we had an incredibly abundant and very gratefully an incredibly abundant amount of physicians. But we had very few nurses and even fewer EMTs. And as a week goes by, 
the need for nursing care and the need for physical therapy just grew exponentially. And it's just harder, I think, for individuals who work paid by the hour, who have multiple levels of administration above them, who have to release them from care or have to approve vacation time. Very hard for nurses and physical therapists who are not independently employed and who may not have partners to cover them or or you know, or in their fourth year or fifth year of training where their system has said, you're going to go to Haiti, we're going to get you there, and you need to go, that's part of your training. It, it, it was really different because in Katrina, we really need lots of physicians. Here, I think we need a lot more nurses and we need a lot of physical therapists. And that is, of course, also increasing as we go forward. That, to me, seems to be a really important lesson, to really try to very rapidly analyze, based on what you know, what kind of persons that you're going to get there and to get them there quickly. Because in terms of individual provider needs, I think people actually, of course, have to be really prepared that these are really hardship circumstances, that they're going to be sleeping on the ground, that they have to bring their own food and water. This is really disaster at its worst, and it's very, very primitive. And one should be prepared to manage themselves. If they cannot manage themselves, they cannot take care of patients. Um, Just on that note, I thought we'd sort of let you end the podcast by telling uh, how people should prepare both physically and emotionally. You've sort of touched on some of the issues, but we haven't explicitly uh, described that. Well, first and foremost, if you're going to a place where there's been an earthquake, you need to be prepared that there's going to be aftershocks. And you also may need to be prepared to uh, accept the fact that there may be another large earthquake or a tsunami. Uh, We had a lot of aftershocks, most of which I didn't notice. Um, I think that anyone who volunteers needs to be sure that they have some method, some network uh, for their loved ones or some person, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be a loved one, but someone knows where you are. And uh, in that interest, I think it's important to try to figure out how you're going to do any kind of international calling, even if you can only do it the first day on your cell phone if you're doing it with a text. And here was a place that I thought, for me, became relevant for Twitter to be able to text a message to a large group of people. Uh, That was the first time I ever really saw the relevance of it. All volunteers need to be completely self-sustaining. They need to have ready-to-eat meals. They need to have peanut butter, nuts, some crackers, water, and actually they should probably bring a little treat as well. Probably need to bring little headphones, need to bring something to cover their eye. They need something that they can lay on. No matter what disaster you're going to, you may need that, and you should always have that in your kit. You need a headlamp because you don't have electricity most of the time. And even if you do, if you're trying to rest patients and families like we did, you may have to pull the electricity and you have to be able to see. And I think that you have to be prepared that this is medicine, practice of medicine in a way that you never even thought you could participate because it's very primitive, but it actually saves lives. And you have to be prepared for the huge amount of human suffering, both from their injuries as well as from their losses. If people really knew what they were getting into, I think perhaps the volunteer search would not be quite as big, although I have to just say how honored I am to be part of this profession. So many people wanted to get there. 
Uh, I was going to allow you at the end to perhaps share with the members of SCCM some final thoughts, either things you learned from this disaster to help prepare you for the next one or some personal things that even given your extensive experience with disasters that was different about this one from your personal perspective. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to participate in disaster management, but I think uh, what was most important about this was because it was offshore and that it was not in the United States, that the difficulty of getting there profoundly affected the people who were on the ground. We would run out of agents, and you have to be very comfortable shifting your paradigm, shifting your expectation. You have to be very innovative, and you have to be okay with practicing perhaps at a level less than what you would do, of course, in your own place. And you have to be able to try to generate the highest level of care within what it is that you have. Most importantly, uh, for me, the difference between Haiti and Katrina was accessibility. That if, uh, you know, if I had a really sick patient with a, a acute unstable spinal cord injury, I could call the ambulance. They would take them to the hospital. Here, that's not true. And I think in this situation, you had to be able to look at the greater good and accept that some of what was going to happen in your practice were things that really morally are profound because you can't do what you want. Sorry. No problem, Barbara. <laughs> uh, we, uh... Sorry. I don't mean to be emotional, but I think that is really the most important thing to understand about this kind of a disaster, which is such a profound disaster. But our ability to access our resources such as we can when we're on land and when we're in the center of resource-rich country is completely different, completely different. And I do wish to say uh, just an absolute kudos to the University of Miami and Project MediShare, as well as SCCM, and reminding us that care comes in a variety of ways, both direct care but also trying to make sure that we're facilitating that the providers that are there are able to do the care they need. And all those are really important. We've had a very, very special opportunity today to speak with Barbara McLean. She is a nurse practitioner. She is a nurse intensivist. She's a fellow of the American College of Critical Care Medicine. And this is her second visit to our podcast, focusing in on her very special and important perspective on the recent disastrous earthquake that occurred in Haiti. Again, I'm very grateful. Thank you so much, Barbara, for being with us today. Thank you, Rich. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to more than four years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Society's internationally renowned Fundamental Critical Care Support, FCCS, program has been updated to reflect the latest skills and techniques practitioners need to treat critically ill and injured patients in the absence of an intensivist. In addition, Fundamental Disaster Management, FDM, has been updated to help healthcare professionals prepare to treat victims of natural or man-made mass casualties. Bring Fundamental Critical Care Support, Pediatric Fundamental Critical Care Support, and Fundamental Disaster Management courses to your institution. For more information, ask to speak with a hospital relations manager or visit www.sccm.org. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.